0: Hello, and welcome to Raising Health, where we explore the real challenges and enormous opportunities facing entrepreneurs who are building the future of health. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode is with Allie Raisman, a two-time Olympic gymnast, investor, and part of A16Z's Cultural Leadership Fund. She is joined by Julie Yu and Daisy Wolf of A16Z Bio and Health. Ali chats about her background, how she thinks about health and fitness now that she's no longer competing, and a few of her passion projects, including financial literacy. I think that financial literacy and mental health are very correlated because I feel like I don't know if I know anyone who like doesn't feel stressed about finances in some capacity our system is kind of set up to make it really confusing and hard to understand. I'm very, very passionate about pushing that conversation because I think that in schools, you know, from the age of, you know, as as early as kids can really understand, I think that they should be taught about like, finances and the importance of speaking up and asking questions. Ali also talks about her latest forays into investing and how she appreciates and empathizes with founders tunnel vision and work ethic. So I really enjoyed being able to meet founders and hear all the amazing things that they're working on and what they're excited about. And then similarly with my gymnastics career was like the same thing all the time. You're so focused, you have this like tunnel vision and I just really respect founders because they're working so hard and I can't imagine how stressful it is and just like the whole process of raising money and there's probably so many different stressors that I don't even know the first thing about but I just really admire and respect their work ethic and their passion. I think it's cool that they're seeing something that's lacking or seeing something they want to do differently and they're solving a problem and fixing it. You're listening to Raising Health from A16Z Bio and Health.
1: Ali Reisman. No introduction needed, obviously. You are a total star and everyone obviously knows you as being one of the most decorated American Olympic gymnasts of all time. And I personally believe that you know gymnastics is just the extreme elite of elite of all professional sports. So first and foremost, congratulations on an amazing career and just inspiring so many folks, including ourselves. And, and thank you for being with, here, with, with us here today.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much. That's so sweet. I am so excited to be here with both of you. And thank you both also for all of your support. You've been so helpful in my new investing journey. So just excited to be on this and excited to chat with you both again.
1: Absolutely. You have um, really been campaigning for many, many things amongst which is health, You know, both physical and mental. And you've been really a, a strong advocate for everything from, from mental health to physical health and body positivity for women, um, improving healthcare overall as a system. And even something that's near and dear to our heart, which is financial health for all consumers. And so what we're hoping to do today is just walk through some of these areas and really just hear your perspective on all of these different flavors of health and how you've approached it both on a personal level as well as uh, from an investing lens as well.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again. And yeah, I kind of got into investing um, a couple of years ago and it's been such a new chapter for me and it's been so challenging and I've learned so much and I still have so much to learn. So very excited to get your guys' perspective and to chat
1: more today. Let's start with physical health. Allie, as an Olympic athlete, you've spent a lot of time thinking about how to stay healthy and maintaining a sense of well-being. And we're curious just how this carries over into your life now. What are wellness strategies that you employ in your post-gymnastics life?
0: Yeah, so I've learned a lot the last several years about my own mental health and also just my own physical health. I think that mental health is much more of a conversation now than it was when I was training and I was competing in gymnastics. However, even so, there's still such a stigma and there's still so many people that are suffering in silence. So I am very passionate about mental health and I I do reflect a lot and wish that a lot of the tools that I've learned now and am still learning, I wish I had when I was younger it's really interesting, because when I was training and competing, you know, for example, if I had an ankle injury, I would do whatever I could to heal my ankle, I would do recovery, I would ice it, heat it, whatever I needed. Um, And I also did a lot of physical therapy for it. But there just wasn't that same emphasis on the mental health aspect of it, which I think was a huge problem. And I didn't know that at the time. But you know, competing at such a High level, I was obviously so nervous and so stressed. And it's kind of crazy to look back. I didn't really have any tools to help me calm down in those moments. So I have been on this journey of just really trying to figure out how to just be calm. You know, my goal throughout the day is just to feel calm, to feel happy. You know, that I think one of the best things that I've realized is that. I kind of let go of this idea of like, one day, I'm going to feel perfect, I'm going to feel happy all the time. I think that's extremely unrealistic. There's so many things in life that can happen. And it's actually been really, really helpful for me. So I guess the way that I take care of my mental and physical health today is that I see a therapist weekly, which has been super helpful. And I plan to do that for a long time. So it's so fascinating to me, because when I really take care of my nutrition, and I'm eating really healthy and really clean and having less sugar. And I feel like my mental health is so much better. I just feel so much calmer. I also think really clearly, I feel just more confident in myself. So I'm still kind of on this journey, but I'm always open to trying learning new things, even if something my friends make fun of me, even if something tastes disgusting, but it's really good for me, and it makes me feel good. I'm going to eat it. So I'm always looking for tools and ways just to feel better. And I do wish that I had this um, when I was competing and when I was training.
1: What kind of exercise do you do in your post gymnastics life?
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting question. And I get asked this a lot. And I think people would be really shocked. I think people think I'm being like modest, or I'm kidding, but I honestly don't work out that much. So first of all, I spent most of my life in a gym, I started gymnastics, and I was two years old. And at the age of eight, I was so busy with my gymnastics career that my coaches said that if you want to go to the next level and you want to get better, you have to stop everything out. So at eight years old, it started to get really intense and I would spend six days in the gym. I had Sundays off and I would train somewhere between four to seven hours a day. And it was like really intensely training. I still feel like I'm still recovering from it because it was exhausting. So I think part of it is It's nice now to be in control and to not have to go to the gym every single day. I will also say that I believe that working out can be really good for our mental health. So I've kind of had to learn how to like re-enjoy working out because I feel like for so long, it was so just intense. I did the same thing every single day. And I felt like no matter what I did, there was always something that needed improvement, which it never got boring, but it was just a lot of pressure. My workouts mostly consist of walking a lot and people always laugh when I um, speak at events because I say I walk on the treadmill on an incline and people think that's so funny because I think people expect me to do more. However, I experience like such major burnout when I finish competing. I'm not, you know, trying to, I don't have a goal of like looking a certain way when I work out. I just want to feel good. I want to feel a little bit of energy and calm. So I'm kind of in this mode of recovery, relaxing, taking care of myself. Um, I do a lot of yoga and I do a lot of walking and that was also challenging for me going from working out seven hours to actually working on the mental side of that and being okay with, okay, today I just walked for 20 minutes but I'm doing the best that I can.
1: Hey, I think it's super fun that we just learned that Allie Reisman walks uphill on a treadmill. So now that, now when I go do that at the gym, I'm just going to call that the Allie Reisman workout and we're going to make that a thing. So thank you for normalizing that. <laughs> you mentioned, you know, the kind of the change that from like being in such a high pressure environment from a workout perspective and then sort of the opposite of that. The other thing we sometimes hear from athletes after they retire is that the the kind of motion of having a day-to-day coaching regimen as well. Of just having so much structure in your life and then going into an environment where you don't have that. Do you feel like there's this void in your life of someone who is gonna, you know, every day when you wake up, tell you, okay, here are the 10 things you need to do?
0: That's such a good question. I love that. Um, so it's so funny. It's like if I'm in a yoga class, like I don't want the teacher to tell me anything. Like I've had enough <laughs> coaching in my life where I think that it depends on what the coaching is when it comes to working out. Like I don't want any coaching. If I'm like doing a cycling class or if I'm doing yoga or something and the teacher corrects me or does something or they try to push me, I, I've, I'm like, I've had enough of that in my life. Where I, Gymnastics, a lot of it was like one-on-one training or my coaches, uh, me and Sylvie, they um, are married. And so a lot of times I would be by myself with the two of them. So it was like so much attention on me at once. And I really believe that that was Such a huge part of my success was like having both of their input and having that one-on-one time but i think i'm like it's really i love being able to just go to a class and if i just feel tired or i don't feel well um i can just stop and i can just like sit there and relax because when i was training for the olympics like if i was tired I felt like almost my coach was harder on me on the days where I was like, I didn't sleep well. He'd be like, okay, well, too bad. If you don't sleep well the night before the Olympics, we need to push you more today so that you feel more prepared, you know? Because when you're competing at the Olympics, if I'm jet lagged or if I don't feel well, it's not like the judges care. If I'm like, hey, can I do this tomorrow instead? It's not an option. You've got, you know, your one opportunity. So, I actually feel the opposite where I love sort of having the flexibility and I love being in control of doing what feels right for my body. And I also feel like, from a mental health standpoint, though, having a routine is really crucial and really important. And I've kind of had to, you know, my schedule was the same pretty much every single day. And now it's different all of the time. And sometimes I might be. Traveling a lot, and I might have like a high stress couple of days, and I might have, you know, a day at home. And so I'm working on how to have that um, routine, which is, it's still something I'm navigating. So I agree. I think routine is really good. And I think for people who travel a lot, you know, whether you're at a hotel or somewhere, finding that normalcy in your life, I think can be really helpful.
1: Yeah. And, and what's also so inspiring hearing you talk, Ali, is that you, you could have done anything with your time once you retired from gymnastics. and You know, the fact that you're putting so much energy into multiple ways to make an impact at different levels is really incredible. And, you know, the fact that you also have time to invest is even more incredible because we know how much work that is as well. We all do investing for different reasons. Um, You know, folks like Daisy and myself, we've been uh, builders in companies before in, in a past life. And after doing, you know, sort of building one company for a long period of time, you know, I think many of us recognize that there's this sort of horizontal opportunity to really build a portfolio of opportunities to make an impact at the industry level versus at just as one individual company. Can you share with us, what was your inspiration? What's the why behind your time that you're spending on the investing side? And, and what's it been like?
0: It's been so fun. And I really love the experience of, of learning about investing and meeting with founders. I became really passionate about financial literacy. I think that financial literacy and are very correlated because I feel like I don't know if I know anyone who like doesn't feel stressed about finances, some capacity. And our system is kind of set up to make it really confusing and hard to understand. I'm very, very passionate about pushing that conversation, because I think that in schools, you know, from the age of, you know, as, as early as kids can really understand, I think that they should be taught about like, finances and the importance of speaking up and asking questions. And I know sometimes when you're in a classroom, it can be intimidating to ask questions. And I kind of just told myself that if I'm going to get into this like financial world or this investing world. I'm just going to make a pact with myself that I'm not going to be afraid to ask questions. And there's no such thing as a dumb question. But I think that I found out really quickly when I started to learn about my own finances, I felt like I was like being put in this box of a dumb athlete. And so I just felt very overwhelmed and I also realized how much anxiety it was giving me not understanding and I really believe that like knowledge is power and I think the more I realized the more why I say it's correlated to mental health because the more that I learned about finances the more confident I became and also the less anxiety I had around money. I'm very privileged and I'm very fortunate but I have friends who myself included, there's so much shame around talking about money. And so I just became really interested in that idea of like, why is it so hard to talk about? And if it was more normalized, would more people be able to understand how to better save their money? And if people felt less shame around asking questions, I think it could really make a big difference. And then I also worked with Aerie, um, the clothing brand for about six years. And I've just learned so much from them over the years. They just have such a Incredible pulse on what their customers want, and just seeing the power of their marketing and how much they really care about their consumers. And when you go into the Aerie store, you see so many people, and it's just—it's not one specific body type, it's not one specific skin type. It's so many different beautiful bodies and so many different people. And, it, and you know, when I do events with them it's pretty incredible there will be people who come into the store and they're crying because they feel so seen and so heard and they see themselves in the photos and that is just like so beautiful i've been fortunate since i was about 17 years old getting to work with a lot of different companies and i've learned a lot but to be able to watch a company like Airy care so deeply about what their customers want it's just really beautiful and amazing and so it got me really interested in learning more about like the behind the scenes of how these companies operate. And also as someone, you know, I am in campaigns for companies. And so I was like, how can I be, how can I give them the most of me and how can I give them what they want so that they also feel happy with what I'm doing for them. So I just started to like ask more questions and meet with them and ask them what they were looking for and how I could be a better partner And then I got excited about this idea of meeting with founders where they're seeing something that's lacking in the world. And I just absolutely love that. And it's really inspiring and it's really, really fun. And so I really enjoyed being able to meet founders and hear all the amazing things that they're working on and what they're excited about. And then I also similarly with my gymnastics career was like the same thing all the time. You're so focused. You have this like tunnel vision and I just really respect founders, because they're working so hard. And I can't imagine how stressful it is. And just like the whole process of raising money. And there's probably so many different stressors that I don't even know the first thing about. But I just really admire and respect their work ethic and their passion. So I think it's cool that they're out there seeing something that's lacking or seeing
1: something they want to do differently and they're solving a problem and fixing it. I'm sure the founders who are listening to this will absolutely appreciate your last comments there. And perhaps on a future podcast, we can debate whether it's harder to raise capital in this market or win a gold medal at the Olympic gymnastics competition. And I'm sure both arguments will be very strong. But actually to that point, you were describing the airy customer experience and it was magical what you just described about consumers walking in, feeling heard, being seen, et cetera. And in many ways, that's like that—that that is the holy grail of what we hope to achieve with our healthcare system at some point. But we all know that the system fails every day in many, many ways um, to to achieve anything close to that. So, curious, what are some of the areas that do inspire you to invest in from a healthcare lens? Yeah,
0: well, it's interesting. I mean, I'm obviously a patient, and so I have you know seen a lot of different doctors over the years. A couple of years ago, one of my best friends, Abby. Um, had stage four cancer and she thankfully is in remission and she has a beautiful healthy baby right now so I'm so thankful and just forever grateful to her doctors for um, truly saving her life it's just it's amazing being able to watch her be a mom and to see everything that she went through but her and I you know we've had a lot of conversations around just watching her go through that horrific experience and just the anxiety the mental health side of having cancer and you know, she talks about how there are some doctors who are amazing. And then there's some that are not amazing. And, you know, when she was in the hospital, she told me that there are certain instances where like she could hear the doctors or nurses like making fun of patients when she's, you know, resting and laying in bed. And I think that the patient experience should be more front and center for doctors because, you know, I obviously have the utmost respect for doctors, but I think both can be true. There are some doctors who are just absolutely amazing and wonderful. And then there are some who are not good as a patient. A lot of people I don't think are comfortable speaking up for themselves or advocating for themselves. And so, you know, while I talked about mental health a lot and how it's more normalized and there's still a stigma, I actually found it took me so long to get diagnosed because doctors would say to me, well, you just have anxiety and depression. And I'd say, well, I didn't mention anything to you about anxiety or depression. What, why do you say that? And they say, well, you know, I read your story in the news. And I'm like, okay, well, now I feel like you're not really paying attention to me as the patient. And you're like making an assumption based off of what you saw in the news. And so that was really challenging for me. And I find that incredibly unprofessional. And even if somebody is, you know, they are feeling sick from mental health, that's not just a, sometimes I feel like when I go to the doctor, they're like, oh, you're just having anxiety. And I'm like, well, If it's making me that sick, then, you know, that it's really important to to help with that. And sometimes I feel like the doctors are just like, oh, just go to a therapist, like see you next year. But there's like no step to help somebody get the therapist. But back to your question about what I'm really interested in. I find myself at the age of 29, I'm really interested in women's health, but particularly the fertility space. I think that's really fascinating and interesting. And at the age where some of my friends have had babies, some of them are pregnant, some of them, you know, are freezing their eggs, we're kind of all in different stages. And I just find it very odd that, you know, so many women, we don't realize if we're going to have trouble getting pregnant until we actually want to start getting pregnant. And I just think like if there was something that when whatever age doctors think is appropriate, whether it's in your early 20s or in your late teenagers, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but I think that this idea of waiting until it just, what if you have an underlying issue that could have been fixed? What if there's an underlying issue that's been a problem for 10 years? And if you fixed it 10 years ago from a blood test or something, then it wouldn't have affected you. And I think in this world where miscarriages and infertility It's so common and postpartum. There's so many things that women suffer and go through and there's just not good solutions. I think a lot of women are really suffering and I'm very passionate about that. And then also, we also, women, we get our period every single month. And I know a lot of women that like at least, one day to multiple days of the month, we feel terrible. I just don't think there is enough conversation and research into women's health. And I don't think it's acceptable that it's normalized that so many women has, have postpartum and there's not a solution to help women as they're navigating that huge change in their life. So I know that was a lot, but I'm very amazing.
1: passionate about it. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, you touched on like access issues, referral issues, um, variants, and and care delivery across doctors, and so much of you know what you described as kind of the challenges of healthcare, all also boil down to the payment model and kind of the payment incentive that drive all these irrational behaviors um, that we we think are are completely insane, but are sort of like the way the system was designed. And so, you know, I would just say that you know we know that the future is bright. We get to meet with these amazing entrepreneurs who are challenging the status quo every single day. And so I think there's a lot to be excited about. I had the chance to do a clinical rotation during grad school and happened to get matched to the um, breast cancer radiology clinic at one of the major hospitals in Boston. And as I was doing my rotation, saw all these procedures being done, a mammogram, a a, a biopsy, et cetera. um, We had to write a report afterwards as kind of a thesis. And mine was effectively like, it's very clear that all of these devices and, and machines were designed by men. Um, and, and not taking into account at all what that user experience is as a, as a female being subject to these procedures. So I think there's a ton of opportunity there.
0: Yeah, I've done a lot of calls and worked with a lot of companies over the years where it might be like a company that's around women's health, but then a lot of the execs are men. And you know, that's not to say like men are welcome. I think there's so many amazing men in my life and I'm really grateful for that. But if you're doing a product that's for women, it's really important to also talk to women And have them be a huge part of the conversation to make sure you're making a product that is helpful and feels good
1: for them. Amen. Okay, so this is amazing, Ellie, because um, thinking about, uh, like, with my past entrepreneur hat on and thinking about, like, you as a potential investor in my company, you've already shown that, like, you're a patient and you can bring that perspective. You're a survivor, you can bring that perspective. You're a star athlete and you can bring sort of that brand and star power to to the table as well. What do you want entrepreneurs to know? About your unique value proposition, and and maybe the broader set of value propositions that professional athletes can bring to entrepreneurs when they invest in their companies.
0: Yeah, well, well, thank you. I depending on what like the product is, but sometimes my perspective as like being a survivor of abuse and how that might be like less. Um, triggering or easier for someone to use, I have helped or talked to founders about that or sort of brought that perspective if it's in the healthcare space. And then of course, as an athlete, I'm very fortunate to have the platform that I have. So I think where it makes sense, you know, most of the companies that I invest in, I do it um, privately, but there are some that we decide together, it makes sense to do a partnership and to promote it. So it really just depends. I hope that I can bring value you know, privately, whether it's like the patient experience as um, mental health advocate, someone I try to be very open and very vulnerable and honest. And I think that the more that's out there I've seen firsthand, you know, when companies are very, the campaigns that I do publicly that are just like pushing a product that don't talk about like something philanthropic, whether it's abuse prevention for me or mental health, they don't really do well. And I honestly, frankly, don't do that anymore where it's just like a specific product like we always try to make it more of a conversation and how is it authentic to me is it something that I really use is it something that really aligns and fits in with my values and I've seen firsthand how my most successful campaigns I do with brands are the ones actually where like it's so interesting like Airy, I've worked with them like I said for about six years like I can barely remember times where they've had me be like this top is so soft you know like they don't I don't really talk about the clothes even though I love them they're just more about they don't retouch anything they're all about encouraging their customers to just be the real you and in this next chapter of my life I've been very fortunate where if I'm meeting with a whether it's a founder or a company that's really established or a big company I've actually been able to be a part of the marketing side of it where I can like meet with like the CMO or the CEO. And I'm very fortunate that I can do that and just give them my idea and share with them what I feel has done really well. And I've been very honored and just, it's really cool how many people really like listen and take in what I say. And there's been many campaigns I've been a part of where I've actually been able to be a part of those like brainstorming marketing conversations, which is just so fun. And I love that aspect of it, but I love how this generation really votes with their dollar and people really want to support companies that they believe in that are doing good and aren't just like trying to sell a product. If you have an amazing product, that's great. But I think a lot of companies do have a great product, but what are you also doing? I also love being involved um, in the marketing stuff because I think that it's really important to be authentic and real and just be honest, being vulnerable and being honest can be hard. But I also have found the more honest I've been, I've been so surprised so many people can actually relate to what I've experienced. And so I feel very inspired by the younger generation with how passionate they are. And they really like, they want companies to do better. They want them to put out statements. They want them to talk about things that are going on in the world and just selling a product isn't enough for them. And I I love that and I respect that.
1: Well, Ali, you are, um, to use the technical term, freaking amazing. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. You're truly an inspiration to everyone. And on behalf of everyone in healthcare, we are just incredibly grateful that you are bringing your energy to our space because we definitely need it.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you for listening to Raising Health. Raising Health is hosted and produced by me, Chris Tatiosian, and me, Olivia Webb with the help of the bio and health team at A16Z. The show is edited by Phil Hegseth. If you want to suggest topics for future shows, you can reach us at RaisingHealth at A16Z.com. Finally, please rate and subscribe to our show. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see A16Z.com slash disclosures.